Let us pray for receptive hearts as we enter into the service of the Word. Eternal God, through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, your kingdom has broken into a troubled world. Help us now to hear your word and give us grace to respond in faithful obedience that our lives might be signs of the new life given through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6 from verse 9. The Gospel of the Lord. When you pray, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Rena. In the prayer that Jesus taught his followers to pray, what we often call the Lord's Prayer, he calls us to pray, your kingdom come. It's a petition that really should come as no surprise when you realize that this message of the kingdom is actually at the center of Jesus' teaching. The New Testament actually finds it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, on his lips all the way to the very end of his ministry. If you look at his most famous teachings, the parables, they so often begin with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like. Whether he's telling stories about farmers sowing seeds or hidden treasure or being invited to a royal wedding feast. The kingdom was at the heart of Jesus' message, and it wasn't just Jesus' message. Before him, John the Baptist came preaching a message saying, quote, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In the Gospels, we see Jesus' disciples going out with the exact same message. In the book of Acts, we learn that Jesus' followers continued preaching after him, quote, The good news of the kingdom of God arguing persuasively about it, even to the very last verse of that book. The central topic of the message and the ministry of Jesus and his followers is actually going to become central to our own lives. And we have to consider at least three things this morning. What is the kingdom Jesus speaks about? What keeps us from praying for it? And how does it become central to our own lives of prayer? That's what we're going to see as we take a look at the book of Revelation, a chapter 21, where we see a picture painted of what it looks like when the Jesus, the kingdom that Jesus speaks of actually comes in its fullest sense. You know, follow along, it's on your pew Bible on page 1,937, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So what do we see here? Well, in verse 5, we see a throne, the seat of a king, and the one who rules over a kingdom. And that's actually our first clue about the kingdom, that the thing that Jesus calls us to pray for is, first of all, 
about a king. You see, wherever the rule and reign of a king extends, that is their kingdom. And so what happens when the rule and the reign of this king comes? What characterizes this kingdom? Well, you don't have to guess because in verse 5, the king, the one on the throne, says, I am making everything. I am making all things new. Behind that word new is this Greek word, a kainos. And that matters because they have more than one word for new in that language. To clarify, think in terms of, of paintings. To say that a, a, a brand new painting that never existed before, whether your kid's refrigerator art or a masterpiece at a contemporary modern art museum, well, that kind of new painting in Greek would be called a neos painting. But if, by contrast, you imagine a glorious painting, centuries, years of old, that had once been damaged. Kind of like the one we're projecting here on the walls for you right now. One that bore the marks, like the one on the left of what had happened before. A ruined painting that nonetheless, through painstaking work, had been restored to what you see on the right. What it was originally meant to be, to be made like new again. In Greek, this would be a kainos painting. That's the image that I want you to keep in mind when we hear that the one on the throne saying he is making all things kainos, all things new in that sense. Not destroying what previously had been damaged, but and we're not replacing it either, but simply restoring it to a new and a better condition. Thank you. Think of the condition of the world as we see it today. Think of the things that cause us fear, the things that keep us up at night, the things that make our hairs and our, on our arms and our necks stand up when we think about them. Think about the disconnect that we so often feel between how we are and how we feel we're supposed to be, the things that make us feel like we're just going to drown in shame. Think of the things that we see controlling us and controlling the lives of others, those bonds that seem unbreakable no matter how we try. Think of the alienation we so often experience in our relationships between us and others or between us and God. Think of the things that we grieve over, the things that make us weep, the things that get us choked up just thinking about. Think of all the things that make us cry out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Seeing all of those same things, the king says from the throne that what his kingdom about is restoring all of it, making everything new. In a sense, making things new is a summary of what leads to the future reality described in those first four verses of Revelation 21. Verses that give us a snapshot of this coming kingdom. Using that same Greek word, kainos, verse 1 talks about a new heaven and a new earth, where heaven and earth is basically shorthand for all of creation. In other words, nothing is beyond the extent of this restoration. When speaking to original audience that saw the sea as symbolic of everything that they most feared, what was most uncontrollable, most powerful, most terrifying, to say to them in verse 1 that there will be no longer any sea was a way of saying that the greatest fears and their source would be no more. Verse 2 goes on and describes the holy city, this new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Our first instinct is to think that this is talking about a place, but the original audience would have caught this often used metaphor of a beautifully dressed bride as an image for the church, for the bride of Christ. Not simply describing some renewed place, but renewed people, covered with the righteousness of Christ, like flowing robes, like a pure white gown. 
See, making all things new doesn't just mean changed circumstances, but changed people. And verse 3 goes on to describe this kingdom as a literal heaven on earth where there is no distinction between where God and his people dwell. Literally an Eden restored where people live in total harmony with God and with each other. And yet, what makes the new heavens and the new earth, this kingdom, so spectacular is not just what's there, but what is not there. In verse 4, we read that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes because death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. See, in the coming kingdom, all the causes of our tears will be abolished the reality that finds echoes throughout the best love stories that we tell. In the final chapters of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Return of the King, after the final battle, after the ring of power that's caused so much suffering is finally destroyed at Mount Doom, the hobbit Samwise Gamgee awakens and to his surprise not only finds that he is alive but also sees Gandalf. And so he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? To which Gandalf replies, a great shadow has departed. In a sense, that's the message of Revelation 21, that the coming of the kingdom means that a great shadow has departed, that everything sad has come untrue, that the source of our fears has been finally uprooted, that alienation has been replaced with reconciliation, that bonds that enslave us and others are finally broken, that our shame and its causes erased, integrity restored, the chains that we long for in us and in others finally taking hold because sin and all of its effects, death included, will be no more. If you want a simple definition, coming kingdom is the reality of things being made the way they ought to be because the rule and the reign of the king, Jesus Christ, has come over them. Or to borrow Tolkien's title, the reality that we will see in its fullness at the return of the king when Jesus Christ comes back. God becoming king on earth as he is in heaven through the person of Jesus. That's what Jesus is asking us to pray for. And yet knowing what the kingdom is also means knowing when it is. That means something. You see, you might think that praying for the coming kingdom is just about a future reality, but the reality is that's not just a story. It's not just about Jesus coming back someday because while Revelation 21 paints this picture of the future reality of the kingdom, Scripture also talks about it as a present reality. We see it multiple times in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist in Matthew eleven twelve, until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. You go ahead one chapter, and Jesus delivers a man from an evil spirit and declares it as evidence that, quote, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Later in Matthew twenty one thirty one, Jesus says that people are already entering the kingdom of God. Not just a, a future reality yet to come, but a present reality that's already a reality that some have already entered into. It's what the Apostle Paul talks about in Colossians 1, verse 13. As one who personally knew the difference between life in the kingdom and life before entering the kingdom, he tells those that knew the exact same reality that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, that great shadow, 
and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. Jesus the King has already come. His kingdom is already established, and yet the mystery of the kingdom is that it has come partly, but not yet fully. Like we see in this next picture up on the screen. Like, like a, a painting that's still being restored. The restoration has begun. And you can see it, but you know it's not yet finished. That's what we read about in Hebrews 2, verses 8 and 9, saying, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. In other words, we see something that has already happened. Jesus is crowned with glory. He is already on the throne. But we do not yet see everything, not every square inch yet, subject to Christ. Hence Jesus' parable in Matthew 13 about comparing the kingdom to a mustard seed and again to a little bit of yeast mixed into flour. Something that starts small, but grows and expands. The kingdom is here and now. It's not as big, it's not as expansive as it will eventually become, but it's growing. Thank you. In the meantime, we live in what some have called the in-betweens, between the beginning of restoration and its end, between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, between the inauguration of the kingdom and its final consummation, between Jesus healing lepers and Jesus healing the world, between the already and the not yet. Knowing what and when the kingdom is actually helps us know what it means to pray for its coming. It means praying for its expansion and growth, praying that the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ would expand within us, in every single part of us, pushing out everything that is not of Christ, and yet praying that the rule and reign of Christ would expand beyond us to those that are not yet a part of the kingdom, that those still under what Paul calls the dominion of darkness, that great shadow, would be freed from the rule and reign of any other would-be master to come to know Jesus as their liberating Practically speaking, it means praying for change. Change in ourselves. Change in those around us. Change in our society, in our culture. With the trajectory towards the way things were meant to be. Why don't we pray that way? What actually gets in the way of these kinds of prayers? Well, in his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller points out that praying for change in society and culture it seems too big. It seems uh, too impossible. Uh, the darkness just seems too much to be overtaken. You see, when we don't see the reality of Jesus' rule and reign today, we begin to doubt if Jesus actually answers these prayers. We start doing the math. We look at our watch, and it's like, okay, so it's been uh, 2,000 years, and Jesus still hasn't returned. So many things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And in a similar way, we, we don't pray for change in others individually, because it just seems too hopeless, like everything else that we've tried to do to change them. It just seems easier to give up than to try to do something so desperate as praying for people. You see, the things that aren't working, nagging them, reminding them of their past failures, yelling at them, guilt-tripping them, you see, all of those things, when we do them, that actually give us a sense of, of power, a sense that we're somehow in control by our actions. Praying for them, on the other hand, can actually feel powerless like we're not in control, like we're conceding that only God could change their heart because only God can change their hearts. And yet praying for God to accomplish change in our own hearts, that might be the most scary prayer. You see, to pray this way would mean, first of all, admitting that we need to change, not just the other person. 
We say we don't want to cry out to God because we don't want to admit that we're actually hopeless to change ourselves, that we're under the sway of something else that we can't break free of. Maybe, maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's an unwanted compulsive behavior. Maybe it's an unforgiving, bitter heart. Maybe it's a paralyzing fear of others' disapproval. You see, we tell God, hey, God, I got this. I'm okay. I got it, man. Because we really don't want to yield to his control over our life. We don't want to let him take the throne. You see, as Miller writes, almost every Christian is confident that God will answer a prayer for change in us, and it scares us to death. Because think about it. What happens when someone prays for patience? God permits suffering in their life. What happens when we pray for humility? God humbles us. You see, we're scared of these prayers because we want to remain in control of our lives. We don't really trust God. And maybe that's because we're more focused on seeking our own kingdom than his kingdom. You see, if his kingdom is the highest priority, if that's what we're actually seeking, we'd see whatever it takes to bring it about as worth it. And yet our cynical hearts believe yielding to Christ's rule and reign can't possibly be better than the way we're already living. Maybe the biggest barrier to prayer and our own instant gratification culture is our own impatience. Jesus taught a parable about this as well. In Luke 18, he talks about a, a widow longing for justice, though she goes to a judge, an unjust judge, and asks for justice, and he won't give it to her. And so she asks again, and he refuses again. And so she asks again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And she wakes up the next morning, and again, and again, and again, until finally he gives in. But not for any good reason, just because she wore her out by asking over and over again. Jesus' punchline of the parable is that if an unjust judge can be worn down by persistent asking for justice to be done, for things to be made right, for things to be made the way they should be, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? who cry out to him day and night. Will he keep putting them off? Will not his kingdom come? The lead singer of the band U2, Bono, once paraphrased Jesus' parable by saying, I believe that the kingdom of heaven is taken by force. God doesn't mind if we bang on the door of heaven sometimes, asking him to listen to what we have to say. But some of us are tired of banging on that door, thinking it will never be answered. So the cultural waters of cynicism start to overflow into our own hearts and start to drown out the will to pray. You see, cynicism is our own culture's way of coping with disappointment. You see, rather than perceiving that, you know, with the cloud often comes a silver lining, it looks through the best situations to try to find the hidden dark cloud behind all of it. It expects the worst so that it never gets let up high enough to be let down by anyone, including God. Ioani Sanchez, who's a 32-year-old Cuban blogger, a leading spokesperson for her generation, wrote, cynicism is a double-edged sword. It protects you from crushing disappointment, but it paralyzes you from doing anything. Paul Miller writes, prayer is feisty. Cynicism, on the other hand, merely critiques its passive, cocooning itself from the passions of the great cosmic battle that we're engaged in. It is without hope. He goes on to write, The movement from naive optimism to cynicism is the new American journey. In naive optimism, we don't need to pray because everything is under control. Everything is possible. 
But in cynicism, we can't pray because everything is out of control. Little is possible. And yet the cynical heart, when it does actually see an answer to prayer, can always say, it would have happened anyway. See, if even answered kingdom prayers can seem powerless to overtake a cynical, impatient, fearful, prayerless heart, then how is it possible? What does it take for kingdom prayer to become central to our own lives? Well, as Miller put it, the cure for cynicism, believing that we see through everything, is actually developing an eye for Jesus and his kingdom. You see, when the kingdom seems too big a thing to pray for, it's because maybe we're only looking for it in its final completion. And yet the kingdom of God uh, comes in many smaller ways and it's happening all the time. In Matthew 12, when Jesus heals a man, when he restores him physically as well as spiritually, he said that it was evidence that the kingdom had already come. And, And here's why. Because Jesus was pushing back the effects of sin in the world. He was taking back territory from the dominion of darkness. He was restoring things to the way they were supposed to be, whether it involved a person's physical state or their spiritual state, and was doing it one person at a time. And yet through the life and teaching of Jesus, he also uh, showed how entire communities began to change the way they perceived things, how they perceived each other, how they related to each other. You see, one reason that we miss the kingdom is that we've over-spiritualized it, thinking it only has to do with, uh, quote, uh, religious matters. In the words of uh, John John Hess Yoder, uh, who was a missionary in Laos, it's like this. He writes that before the colonialists imposed national boundaries, the kings of Laos and Vietnam reached an agreement on taxation in the border areas of their lands. Those who ate short grain rice, built their house on stilts, and decorated them with Indian-style serpents, they were considered Laotians. On the other hand, those who ate long grain rice, built their house on the ground, and decorated them with Chinese-style dragons, they were considered Vietnamese. The exact location of a person's home isn't what was the final factor. You see, what made a person belong to a kingdom was the culture and the values that they'd exhibited. And so it is with the kingdom of God. You see, one sign of the kingdom coming is that the culture and the values of its king start to take hold in people. You see, for centuries, the kingdom of God had been advancing in the lives of Jesus' followers, overflowing to the people around them, physically, spiritually, socially, culturally. It's what you see if you ever look at the ancient Roman Empire. You see, back then when a newborn was unwanted, maybe because born with birth defects, maybe because born female, for all sorts of reasons, the child was often left to die of exposure. Although if they were picked up by somebody, they would often grow up to be living as slaves. In the midst of that, Christians began to rescue these abandoned children, taking them into their own houses, adopting them as their own children with all the rights of their own kids. You see, those that saw themselves as rescued by King Jesus, adopted into his family spiritually, began to do the same thing for others physically. Yet the care and concern didn't stop just with children. You see, the Roman Emperor Julian, who was really no fan of of Christians, famously remarked about the kindness that Jesus' followers would show to strangers. You see, he felt embarrassed by their generosity, remarking how they, quote, support our poor in addition to their own. And in turn, he instructed those of his own religion to try to catch up. It was actually around the same time that uh, St. Basil of Caesarea founded the first hospital 
a heritage spiritually that's reflected in the names of most modern hospitals in our own world. You see, after centuries, despite countless emperors trying to marginalize and eradicate Christianity, it only spread all the faster and wider. And the values of Jesus' kingdom began to take hold more and more. A culture of life and mercy was growing and growing. The kingdom was coming. Fast forward to the 18th and 19th century, when Christians of the Quaker tradition, those who believed that Jesus, their king, had set them free from their slavery to sin, began the abolitionist movement in Great Britain. They were soon followed by an evangelical Anglican named William Wilberforce, who introduced the first parliamentary bill to abolish slave trade throughout their empire. Fast forward to 2015, after a white supremacist named Dylan Roof tragically murdered nine African Americans at a church in Charleston, South Carolina, the surviving member's response is what really sent shockwaves throughout that state. You see, as followers of King Jesus, the one who forgave them when they were his enemies, they in turn openly forgave the one who murdered their friends, brothers, sisters, spouses, parents, and even children. And within weeks, After decades of failed political attempts to remove the Confederate flag from the state capitol, it was only after seeing people forgive as they had been forgiven that the flag came down. The kingdom was coming. And yet before the kingdom comes through somebody, it first comes to them. A while ago I heard the story of a a young, brash, often hurtful, very religious guy, uh, we'll call him Sai. After relocating uh, to a new city, a new mentor of his began to ask him questions, questions that started revealing gaping holes in his own belief system. After countless conversations, personal interactions with the words of scripture, and behind-the-scenes prayer by friends of his, Sai, quite to his own surprise, became a Christian, entered the kingdom, became a follower of Jesus. Soon, lots of things began to change in Sai's life. Things changed for the better, to the point that people that know him today find it hard to believe what he used to be like. Initially, he wanted his family to experience the same thing, and yet the conversations with those relatives didn't exactly go the way that he planned. So he began each morning fasting and praying for his family that the kingdom would come to them, that they would not have a bite of their first meal until they prayed that the kingdom would come to their family. It was a year or so later that it started to come. First one family member, then another. Not long ago, they learned about a distant relative they hadn't even known about, that the exact same thing had happened despite only praying for family and not even having personal contact. You see, like a mustard seed, the kingdom was growing. Like a bit of yeast mixed with flour, it was expanding. And yet, the missing ingredient was prayer. As pastor and theologian Sam Storms put it, we must never presume that God will grant us apart from prayer what he has ordained to grant us only by means of prayer. If we look on the Old Testament, in Exodus, 11, in Exodus 15 and Numbers chapter 11, as Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, wandering the desert, desperately in need of food and water. Food and water came, but only after Moses had prayed for it. In 1 Samuel 1, the barren woman Hannah conceived after she prayed for a child. In 1 Kings 17 and 18, both drought and rain came 
but only after Elijah prayed for them. God had ordained that these things were going to happen, but only after and in response to prayer. You see, when we think about this in light of Jesus' call to pray, your kingdom come, we realize that what Jesus is doing is he's inviting us into the process by which he is making everything new. And when we see the wonders that God has done, when our eyes are opened, when the cataracts of cynicism start to fall away, our cynicism is replaced with a childlike wonder, a wide-eyed wonder that eagerly and repeatedly says to our Father, having seen what he's already done, do it again! Do it again! And doesn't stop until she sees it happen. And yet the kingdom doesn't simply come by what Jesus said, but also by what he did. You see, we enter the kingdom when we see that we by nature are the rebel, that we by nature are a sworn enemy of the king, that our sin, according to Jesus, is itself a spiritual coup, cosmic treason, a claim to be the rightful rulers, a claim to the rightful throne of God as king of our own lives, something that no amount of good deeds could ever erase. And yet the way that Jesus actually takes back his throne is not by slaying his enemies, but by dying for his enemies, not making them pay for their sins, but paying for them himself on the cross. You see, the reason why Hebrews 2 uh, tells us that we can see Jesus on the throne, crowned with glory and honor, is because first, he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everybody. That's what makes the Christian gospel, the good news of the kingdom, so radically different from all other religious and secular philosophies. You see, the gospel isn't simply choosing to follow advice. It's choosing to follow a king who lays down his life to bring us into his kingdom. A reality so transforming that you can't help but long for others to experience the same thing. You see, you start to pray, your kingdom come when the kingdom comes to you. In his book, uh, Following Jesus in Turbulent Times, Hikmat Kashu shares a story of a Sudanese man named Yasir. I think we've got a picture of him for you. Yasir came from a family of devout Sunni Muslims. One of his uncles played a major role in starting the Muslim Brotherhood in Sudan, and another one was one of the top chiefs of the secret service in northern Sudan. When he was only eight years old, Yasir's father took him to a religious school far from home and then left him there. For two years, Yasir attended that school, memorizing the Quran, being radicalized by his Sunni brothers and teachers. Then his father showed up to take him home again, where he went to the local school and had a new classmate, a Christian boy named Zachariah. Yasir regarded him as an infidel, just as he'd been taught, just as he grew up to think. So one day, he and a friend took Zachariah into the forest and set about beating him to death. After breaking his bones, they left him to die. Yasir's family were also involved in persecuting Christians. In fact, one day, his uncle was sent to arrest a pastor. While he arrived at the church, he he decided to wait until after the service before he would make the arrest. Meanwhile, the preacher, not knowing what was going to happen, was preaching from the book of Acts, telling the story of Saul's conversion. At the end of the service, Yasir's uncle went up to the pastor and asked him, why were you preaching about me and sharing my stories? 
the pastor explained that he was telling a story from the Bible, but Yasir's uncle didn't believe him until the pastor opened the book of Acts and actually read it to him. His uncle was captured by the power of the word of God and stayed until early the next morning asking the pastor question after question. The conversation ended with Yasir's uncle entering the kingdom, giving his life to Jesus. This conversion led to his being thrown in prison. And yet even there, he was active and sharing his faith, and many came to faith because of him. One day, Yasir's cousin became very sick, which led to him being admitted to a hospital in a coma. His father couldn't go to see him because he was in prison, so he arranged for two Christian men to go to the hospital and pray for his son. The men arrived while Yasir was there visiting his unconscious cousin. Yasir watched as these two messengers went inside to pray for the boy. When they'd finished praying, he saw the boy open his eyes, start to remove all the tubes that were attached to him, and on that same day, the boy was healed, and he went out to play. Yasir was dumbstruck. How could God listen to the prayers of these infidels? How could he grant them a miracle? So he decided to learn more about Christianity, to investigate it himself, and to make a long story short, Yasir ended up giving his life to Jesus as well. As a result, his family disowned him, and they abandoned him. More than that, they went to a graveyard. They put his name on a grave as a sign to him that he was dead to them. Rejected and persecuted, he decided he was going to leave Sudan. Before leaving, he went and stood by the grave with his name on it and wept and wept. He loved his parents. He was in agony that they had rejected him the darkest moment of his whole life. As he was standing there, though, he felt the hand of someone touching his shoulder as he heard a voice say, Yasir, don't cry. Your grave is empty, and so is mine. He felt God's amazing presence and a calling from God that day to go and serve him and witness to the resurrection. So he left Sudan. He continued his studies in Islamic studies and jurisprudence. He earned a master's from Columbia University and today is a lecturer and a pastor of migrant churches in Germany. A few years ago, Yasir visited Egypt where he was teaching at a pastor's conference. While he was speaking and sharing his testimony, he noticed that one pastor with a broken arm and a broken leg was in tears. So after he was finished, Yasir went to the pastor and asked him, Why were you weeping? pastor who was blind in one eye and physically fragile looked up and told him, I am Zachariah, the little boy you beat 25 years ago. Zachariah opened the Bible, and there was on the first page of his Bible the name of Yasir, written by the hand of the Christian teenager he had tried to kill. Zachariah said, since that day I have not stopped praying for you wonderful to know that you now are a follower of Jesus. Yusir himself was in tears now as he stood in front of Zechariah and saw what the beating had done to him and yet also saw his loving heart. He could only ask, what kind of religion can make one love an enemy so much? Only one that has as its center a king who dies for his enemies, a king who brings us under his rule and his reign, not by brute force, but by an irresistible grace, one who is making all things new, one person at a time, and invites us 
to join him in the renewal of all things by our words, by our deeds, and by our prayers. Because you start to pray, your kingdom come when the kingdom comes to you. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you as as those who, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, religious, irreligious, comfortable in church or wondering why we're even here, all of us come to you as those who need the liberating, heart-transforming power of Jesus, rule and reign coming over our own lives. Whether already followers or those simply seeking to see the kingdom grow in our own hearts, Father, we pray that as we come to this table where you show us what it took for you to bring us into your kingdom, that you would transform our own hearts and give us a renewed heart to pray as you taught us that your kingdom would come. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.